Welcome to the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam, a.k.a. the New Hampshire Transit Authority. I'm Mark Konzorowski, a.k.a. just you and me, but mostly me, as you might have guessed. As you might have guessed, we're going to have a discussion about the rock band Chicago. Not the, not the city, the band Chicago. And it's going to be a good one. And because neither one of us is an expert on the band, we're calling this uh, a freeform discussion on Chicago. And that's based on the track Freeform Guitar, which appears on the band's first album. It's a six-minute melange of feedback, wheezy, wooing sounds. It kind of sounds a little bit like a Chicago Transit Authority uh, subway train going by. L, rather. That's very good. So... Like I said, this is going to be a free-form discussion. It's not going to be as structured as our as our previous conversations, and we'll try to keep we're going to try to keep it within the era of the original band. So I'm going to list off the band members' names, if that's okay with you, Mark. That's perfectly fine. Okay, the original Chicago lineup: Peter Cetera, bass and vocals; Terry Kath, guitar and vocals; Robert Lamb, keyboards and vocals; Lee Lochnane. Trumpet, flugelhorn, backing vocals. James Pankow, trombone, backing vocals. Walter Parazader, saxophones, flute, and backing vocals. And Danny Seraphine on the drums. Seven members, yeah. And a lot of those guys do vocals. There are, th- there are three main vocalists in the band. Peter Cetera, Terry Kath, and Robert Lamb. That's true. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the three of them sing... The interesting thing is that they don't all always sing songs that were written by them. They kind of trade vocals around. Yeah, that's true. You 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 always assume that when a band, when someone's singing a song, it's a song they wrote. But in this case, it's not always it's not always true. And in some cases, the band members sang songs they didn't want to sing. That's true. Uh, Twenty five six to four was uh, bandied about between Robert Lamb, who actually wrote the song. Uh, Terry Kath took a turn at it. And they didn't care for his, for the outcome. It ended up being sung by Peter Cetera, who had like the least actually to do with the song. But that is the vocal that has been immortalized. You know, I know I've heard the explanation for what twenty five or six to four means, but do you know what it is, Mark? Apparently, according to Robert Lamb, he was sitting around in the middle of the night trying to finish a song that he could record the next morning. And he looked at his wristwatch, and the lighting was poor. So it could have been 25 minutes before 4 a.m. or 26 minutes. Oh, okay. So when he says 25 or 6, he really means 25 or 26. He's just shorthanding it. Plus, you know, I mean, it's it's syllables. 25 or 26 to 4, it doesn't quite have the same uh, rhythm to it. Anyway, the band got started in 1967 as the big thing. Some of the members uh, met at DePaul University, and some of the members did not. That's true. Uh, Robert Lamb is the one that came in late. Uh, Robert Lamb is actually from Brooklyn. The other six members are all from Chicago. They came together and formed a group, as you said, called The Big Thing. Um, They played a whole lot on the local Chicago scene. Somewhere along the way, um, a producer named James William Gershow heard them. And uh, brought them to the attention of uh, Clive Davis at Columbia Records. The the interesting thing about this is that at the same time that the big thing, a.k.a. Chicago Transit Authority, were getting started, the hugest thing on Columbia Records was a group called Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Um, you've heard of them, of course. Yes, I have. Blood, Sweat, and Tears on paper are almost the same band as Chicago. Uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears has a huge horn section, nine members. Chicago, of course, has seven members. They have the standard rock band instrumentation plus a horn section. However, the difference is that Blood, Sweat, and Tears is much more East Coast. They're much more big band. Their members all went to Juilliard, and their emphasis is much more pop. Chicago, on the other hand, or Chicago Trans Authority, as they were known, is much more of an actual rock band. Their focus is, at that time is soul, R&B, rock and roll. It, it was a difference of emphasis that differentiated the two groups. And what's interesting, too, is that the band 
started out as Chicago Transit Authority, and that's what their first album is titled. And apparently, as a result of that, the Chicago, the actual Chicago Transit Authority threatened to sue them, hence their name changed to Chicago. And it just makes a lot more sense. You know, the DJ is like, oh, there's a new Chicago Transit Authority. That's a mouthful. Just say, you know, Chicago. Right. It just makes more sense. And one thing, I've been listening to some Chicago this week. Boy, Peter Sotero was a really good bass player. I forgot that he was a musician. He was a, he was a very very good bass player. He was a good songwriter too. the The original group had a much more hard edge to it. They were much more, you know, gritty soul R and B, very urban Chicago sound. I mean, they they do exemplify the sound that was coming out of Chicago at that time. It's it's very soulful. It's very bluesy. It's very brash. It's very up front, up tempo. Oh yeah, and it goes into their sound. Like one of the things I've always said is the great bands never perform just one type of music. There's all sorts of music within Chicago. There's you know there's jazz, there's pop, there's funk, there's rock and roll, even some stuff that you could almost say is progressive in terms of the structure. You know a lot of their stuff. You have these multi-part song suites, and you realize that the song that you've been listening to on the radio all these years was taken, like was was edited out of that. That's true. Um, there were all there were two singles off the second album, uh, "Color My World," and what was the other one? Uh, "Make Me Smile." Both of those are components of a thing called "Ballet for a Girl from Buchanan," which is right. a long fifteen-minute song suite with multiple parts and it turned out that two of those parts became singles which is kind of unheard of there's not even a progressive band properly called that's ever managed to pull that off when i learned that uh you know make me smile was actually you know part it was make me smile and now more than ever years ago just on my own on some audio program i did a edit and i put the two together it's kind of crude but it works I mean, you get it's you feel like you get the full song because if you just listen to the single edit of "Make Me Smile," you're only you're like, okay, I'm missing this. You're missing this part of the song, and I'm missing that part of the song. Whereas if you added them together, it's if it, you know it feels right. Yeah, it's a really it's a really nice uh, what do you call that mixtape kind of thing? Back when we used to make mixtapes. Oh, I made many of those back in the day. Well, speaking of which. You know that every Chicago release up through the first four, the first three albums were doubles. The live album was quadruple. It was a literal four-album box set. Can you imagine owning those on eight-track? <laughs> you'd, you'd, you'd have to be a weightlifter to carry those to your car or to carry them anyway. You'd have to have a case just for the Chicago eight-tracks alone. I mean, it, you know, those big cases that – um those racks that they have on pickup trucks, you know, the rifle rack, you need to build like, you know, a rack just to carry your, your Chicago collection, an eight track. And can you imagine ballet from, uh, for a girl from Buchanan broken up over the four parts of the eight track? Yeah. Make me smile. (laughs) No, it'd be make me smile. That's right. It fades in and fades back in. Fades out, fades back in. Ah, the joys of 8-track. I'm glad that was an era that I largely missed. I I didn't have to drive. By the time I was driving, cassettes were the thing, which were a little easier to deal with. Yeah, you could could fast forward. Let me ask you a question, Mark. How did you discover Chicago? Oh, they were a huge radio. They were a radio staple on WMMR. WMMR was your... Your classic rock, state, straight down the line rock and roll station in Philadelphia. And Chicago were staples on it. All of their singles were played. A lot of the album tracks were played. Introduction was, was played on the radio in those days, believe it or not. And that was all the way up in the early 80s. That's a great song. I know for me, I, ha- I have to admit this, but... I discovered them. I, I was aware of them. I saw their album covers because their album covers were very eye-catching and caught your captured your imagination. But I got into them via 
the 80s radio hits and some of the stuff, the videos they showed on MTV and the local video channel. That was the first Chicago that I was aware of and that I was kind of, you know, interested in. But I didn't discover the the classic era stuff, the Terry Kath era stuff until later. I mean, I'm talking like later 80s, early 90s. And that's when I realized that for me, that's the that's the Chicago that matters most. Yeah, those early albums definitely had a magic to them. Like I said, they had much more of a gritty kind of rock-oriented sound. They could experiment within that framework, and it was a very, very elastic, very wide framework. But they were not, in those days, strictly pop balladeers. There was definitely a lot more edge to their music and a lot more depth. Yeah, because they were very ambitious. I mean, they didn't want to just make standard rock music. They wanted to make stuff that went all over the place and it did and that's like the beauty of those first three albums if you listen to like the singles for example like does anybody really know what time it is unless you buy the first album or you get a box set you don't realize that there's a classical piano intro for like the first minute or two of the track yeah again you know a lot of the songs in those days are multi-part and they develop in ways that are unpredictable that that was the other great thing about them they, they had so many members, and so many members were writers within the group and arrangers that they literally could take a song in like 20 different directions. And you know, the funny thing is, is I could picture Frank Sinatra singing, does anybody really know what time it is? Oh, yeah, you definitely could. I was walking down the street one day. Then I'm going, what the hell is this hippie crap? They definitely had a foot in the old school of big band arrangements, but they were hip about it in a way that Blood, Sweat, and Tears was not. Blood, Sweat, and Tears were more Broadway. Like I said, they were Juilliard. New York City, you know, came from that mindset. Chicago was much more urban, much more, you know, like I said, soul and R&B. There's definitely a difference in the way that the music shakes out, and I think that's one of the reasons that Chicago lasted so much longer than Blood, Sweat, and Tears, or any of the other, you know, horn rock groups. They were they were so much more than a one-trick pony. Because they were called Chicago Transit Authority, their their second album is actually called Chicago. It's referred to as Chicago Two, but it's really called Chicago. It's it's like you go from your first album, you go from your second album to your first album, your first album to your second album. It's almost like a Monty Python, Traveling Wilburys type thing, except it wasn't intentional. That's true. And then the next album is Chicago 3, and a lot of people were probably wondering, well, where's 1 and 2? They probably felt they missed something. And that album is interesting, Chicago 2, because it's one of my favorite songs from that is is on there. Yeah, Make Me Smile is on the, is on that, which is a great one. The other song that's on there is Color My World, which has a very melancholy piano line running through it. And it's sung by Terry Kath, of course, the great guitar player from the group, who also had a what is referred to as a very Ray Charles-ish, Ray Charles-ish type voice. Yeah, it was, it was a very sort of low kind of baritone voice, gritty but soulful. You know, they call that a ragged but right, and that's pretty, uh, pretty much a good description. And the other thing, too, is that Terry Kath is he's starting. I think he's starting now to get some recognition due to some documentaries. But he is a monster on guitar. He's just he he really tears it up. There's a story that Jimi Hendrix said to I believe it was Walt Perizader or it could have been someone else in the band in the early days that he plays better than I do. Yeah, Jimmy was Jimmy was definitely a always generous with giving compliments to other guitarists. Terry Kath, I think, because he played guitar in what was considered by many, you know, kind of snobby rock and roll fans as a horn band, you know, a pop band, he he was never given the recognition that he really deserved. And it's true that Chicago doesn't do themselves any favors by becoming smoother and smoother and smoother with each succeeding record past the first three. But still, I mean, within that context, he was a monster player, and he was the one that always supplied the rock and roll authenticity to that experience. 
part of the reason that Terry Kath and some of the other members of Chicago don't get recognition is because of the fact that rather than put themselves on the album covers, they hid behind a logo. There were many variations on that logo throughout the first 10 or 11 albums. And in fact, I think on one or two of them, the band members are seen, but for the most part, you know, they're what was is referred to in the industry as a, quote, faceless band. It was not the type of band where one or two members get the spotlight, appear in all the album covers, and take up all the publicity. It was not like the Rolling Stones, which are clearly the Mick and Keith band. Chicago was a real collective. I mean, they named themselves after a city of people, and in a way, they were almost kind of like a small town. I mean, there were so many members of the group. And so, yes, they, they definitely had much more of a group a group identity rather than, you know, putting the spotlight on solo members. Right. This isn't a band where, you know, David Lee Roth or Eddie Van Halen would be, you know, would be getting the lion's share of the attention. This was almost like a democracy in a, in a sense. It definitely was. I mean, there were so many singers, so many songwriters. It was impossible to put the spotlight on any one person. So I think they did the wisest thing by creating a group logo and album covers that were, you know, focused on conveying the idea behind the music rather than any one member. And they definitely um, set a standard for album cover presentation. Uh, Many of those covers are iconic. Very much so. Which Chicago album is the best one? Pick your favorite. It's a hard one to do because there's just so many great ones. You, you'd almost and the, the other thing too I noticed on the on the album versions is they didn't always list the tracks on the backs on the back cover. So it's you almost were exclusively basing your purchase on what you saw as opposed to what song is on this record or what songs are on the record. That's true. Um, the back cover is almost always a repeat of the front. And it always says Chicago, and it never has one, two, three, four next to it. It's I guess in those days you went by the sticker, the hype sticker on the front that said, you know, contains feeling stronger every day, Chicago 8. Otherwise, you, you really wouldn't know which one was 6, 7, or 8. Right. It's kind of like when you pick up Led Zeppelin 4, and you have to go by the hype sticker saying, featuring Stairway to Heaven, otherwise you would not know which songs you were getting. You wouldn't even know it was a Zeppelin album unless you read Zeppelin on the spine. But yeah, Chicago was a lot like that. Yeah, and the fact that they titled their albums, you know, numerically, Roman numerals, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, you know, it just goes on and on. That's the other thing. They uh, they educated a lot of people about Roman numerals. That was yet another public service that the group performed right trying to arrange your chicago albums in the proper order can be tricky because you have to you have to know your roman numerals and fortunately you know i grew up watching movies like star wars and the the godfather where you know they use the roman numerals so you you had an awareness of that if you if, if you grew up in the 70s or the 80s that's true otherwise you know like craig smith and megan you take a look at the ninth album nico chicago x I cracked up when he said that. I thought that was the funniest thing. The concept of a podcast doing a greatest hits album, when I first, you know, I thought, wow, that's kind of weird. But some of them can do it really well. Um, Pods and Sods, Craig and Megan can do it. History Science Theater can do it. They can actually make, in some cases, a greatest hits album more interesting than some of the regular albums. They absolutely can. And, and in Chicago, makes the case even easier because they include their greatest hits album among their official numbering which is a strange thing most groups release a greatest hits album as basically a stopgap they don't they don't feel like getting in the studio they don't feel like going on tour this year have the record company put out a compilation but and, and it's never considered among their official discography well, I think it's considered a, their official discography. It's just not considered to be one of their studio albums or, you know, cohesive works or it's like live albums. You know, you there's a box set of the Chicago albums and it's, you know, most of for the most part, it's studio. It's just the studio stuff. But Chicago X, a.k.a. nine, is definitely included among their discography. And where am I going with that? <laughs> 
well, you know, you could say where where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? That's good. And there's even a poster included, which is exclusive with that release. So they definitely considered it an official part of their discography. And that cover is interesting because it's one of the few. We're still talking about the Chicago Hicks album, right? Yes. Okay. And we'll have to, you know, probably pay Craig Smith a royalty for that one. It helps me remember. Actually, it's just the first greatest hits album. The cover of that, they're all hanging off like a scaffolding, like they're trying to paint a building or something like that. Wasn't that based on like Norman Rockwell or I forget who the who the photographer was or the artist was? It was it was a style that was very popular back in the seventies. Well, it's very retro. Um, advertisements were painted in that style in magazines in, in the 1900s and teens. It, it's a throwback to that Norman Rockwell Americana type, type of painting. And I think it also sends the message that Chicago was nowhere near finished, which is why, you know, the logo was unfinished. They're hanging off the scaffold. This is a work in progress is basically what that what what the image actually means, I think. You're probably right on that one. I, I never read that much into it, but you being a writer, you would. Yeah, it, it's just – I'm not 100% on that, but that seems to be the message that's being conveyed. This is the best of what we've done so far, and, you know, yes, there's a cliffhanger here because we ain't done. And, that you know, that encompassed, what, 1969 through 1974, 75, I believe? Yeah, 70. 69 through 75. Um, Chicago 8 was actually out that year also, but there's nothing from 8 on the Greatest Hits album. It was considered, like, too soon. That's interesting, because some bands would have wanted something off the most recent album, but it probably, I'm, I'm sure tracks from that probably showed up on the second Greatest Hits album. That second Greatest Hits album is the only one that doesn't actually have the Chicago logo on it. I think the reason for that was because that came out in 1981. I think that was something that was put together by the record company after the band had left the label. So they had no choice over the cover artwork or which Chicago logo was going to be used. I think they used different Chicago logos, but not for the band, like maybe the police department or, you know, something from the city. It's kind of a strange choice. You know, every logo in Chicago, but Chicago's logo. (laughs) I don't know if that was like a backhanded compliment or not. Or what's funny is that afterwards, when Columbia would, would you know reissue the same greatest hits albums and over, they would go back to the Chicago, the classic Chicago logo. It was a case of you know at that time, Peter Cetera was emerging as the dominant figure in the group, but coming into Chicago, what was it? Their their comeback album was what sixteen? Yes, yeah, sixteen. That, because that second greatest hits album is considered 15. But coming into 16, all that people really remembered about the group was the classic logo. And of course, the hits, they didn't have a dominant figure to spotlight until, of course, the videos came out and Peter Cetera became, by default, you know, the face of the group. That's true. And that was the beginning of an era that's controversial, I guess, to some fans. Some fans love it, some don't, and some love both. It's hard to say. But the classic era, the classic era for us, I think, is the one that matters the most. And that era is pretty much embodied by Terry Kath as the central figure. And within that era, fans, of course, debate over which one of the first 11 is the best. For me, my favorite has always been three which, for those of you who don't know, is the one that actually contains the least number of hits. There's not even a song from 3 on Chicago X. That's the one that looks like graffiti on a wall, right? It's a, it's a flag that's been shot up. I don't think they were making a statement with that. Incidentally, with Chicago 3 came a huge poster. Do you know the poster I'm talking about? No, I don't. It's the one where they go to Arlington Cemetery... And each member of the group poses as a soldier from a, from a different American war so that you have one who's d- dressed as a northern soldier from the Civil War. Another one has Confederate. Another one is dressed like World War One, uh, Revolutionary War. And I think it was uh, Terry Kath who's, who has the Vietnam era garb on. 
And so they pose at Arlington Cemetery among the gravestones. And at the very bottom of the poster, it's a little note that gives all the figures for the number of American troops that were killed during each conflict. And at the very end, it has uh, the figure for Vietnam, 56,000 and counting. Wow. That's one of my favorite songs is off that. It's from the Travel Suite. It's called Free. I always loved that song. It's just got a great feel to it. Has a nice little rave up to it, and uh, the sentiment, you know, rings true today. It absolutely does. Another great song on the, off that album is um, "I Don't Want Your Money," which is kind of a very bluesy, grand funk kind of sound alike almost. It's the kind of song you can almost picture the Blues Brothers doing twelve years later. I would. I would probably have been more likely to have heard it from the Blues Brothers than Chicago in it originally if had that happened. <laughs> it's a it's it's a good one. It's a cooker, as Sammy Davis would say. Uh, Sammy Davis, he would have been a good lead singer for Chicago. He would. That would almost be taking it too far in the vaudeville direction. <laughs> but what's interesting is, uh, did you ever see the TV special that they did? early in the 1970s it's on youtube i think i've seen parts of it i don't think i've sat through the whole thing there there is a segment of that show where al green shows up and they back him on um what's it let's stick together let's stay together let's stay together yeah they he and they work together incredibly well yeah they they definitely had soul it was it was part of their their makeup as a band. I mean, it was just soul in terms of soul, soul in terms of their jazz, soul in terms of their pop. And it's really cool when you see artists get together like that and mix like that. It's, it's almost like, you know, Daryl's house where you're getting to see class, you know, class musicians who have never worked together, work together or play together, I should say, and really enjoy their, the interchange and the chemistry between them. And that just goes to show you that in a group with so many members, who are all top-level musicians, you do have that elasticity of format. You're not stuck in one place musically. Not to harp on this, but in the 80s, when they became the adult contemporary band, I think a lot of fans felt betrayed by that because the the elastic format was gone. It It was a waste of potential in a lot of ways. It's a it's a battle between wanting to keep the integrity of the original band or the format of the original band and adapting to a new decade and a new sound because at that point Chicago was probably you know had been written off as a you know 70s band that were finished at least finished in terms of the their chart success and having any kind of you know credibility or impact yeah it was it was probably a struggle of course and of course, also, you know, it was the MTV era. It was the changing of the guard because the younger crowd were much more into, you know, Van Halen and Quiet Riot. Guilty. Absolutely. And so, yeah, if you're someone of Chicago's age and generation, it, it makes sense that you're going to steer more toward pop because, you know, three guys playing horns aren't really going to impress a lot of heavy metal fans. So the, the the cleavage there does make sense. I don't it's know just, if I want to look at Chicago's cleavage, to be perfectly honest with you. Well, that's why they had videos. That's why Peter Cetera romanced, you know, Amy Grant in that classic video sponsored by Hallmark. Okay, that's that's Peter Cetera's solo. Okay, let's 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 veer back to the classic era. And in fact, why don't we go through each band member and just offer our thoughts on them, and then we'll go through the album covers. And we can pick our favorites. Okie dokie. Let's go through the band members. So we'll start with, of course, Peter Cetera, who was the bassist and one of the vocalists. Peter Cetera is a is a kick butt bass player. Um, he plays incredibly throughout those early albums. What is that song? What is the jam at the very end of CTA? Liberation. He plays incredible bass on that. He plays great on twenty five six to four. He was a very, very accomplished McCartney-esque bass player. He was a great singer, too. And he wrote good songs. 
he wrote he was always pop he was always pop from the very beginning but i think within the context of the group they were able to steer it in in such a way that it it was pop but without being sugary yeah absolutely and like i said before listening to this early stuff really makes me appreciate him as a musician songwriter and kind of renews my respect for him it's good to hear that the guy who did the adult contemporary stuff was once somebody who, who had some edge to him and could really play and could and be part of a really great ensemble. Absolutely. Let's see. Who do you want to go to next? Uh, let's do Robert Lamb. Robert Lamb. He has that voice. He is the most um, Sinatra-esque voice in the group, you know, like you were doing earlier. Yep. He is the guy who I think more than anybody brings like the jazz edge to the group, the big band edge to the group. He's a through line to this day with the band, still playing with them, still writing songs. And it's good to have him still there because he's one of the driving forces of the band. Absolutely. Then, of course, you have Jimmy Pankow, who was Jimmy Pankow was the uh, the Trump, the trombone player. Another original member who remains to this day and is still helping to drive the band along. Then again, I mean, how many trombone players, you know, how many openings for, you know, a trombone player in Metallica? Probably not many. No, I I heard they tried hiring a trombone player once, but Lars, you know, threw him out or Mm. he left because of Lars. I, I don't know what the story was there. Yeah, no bone clover, I think. <laughs> bone clover. Jimmy Pankow, which, by the way, is a good Polish name. Jimmy Pankow is the arranger within the group. He's he's the head of the horn section. And most of the classic horn lines that you hear on Chicago songs like Saturday in the Park or Does Anybody Know What Time It Is? Does Anybody Really Know What Time It Is? Those arrangements were written by Pankow. So he is the one that is pretty much in charge of the horn section. Well, somebody's got to be. And I'm, yeah. I'm glad it's him. And of course, Terry Kath, we can't say enough about. Danny Serafin, great drummer. Interestingly enough, if you watch the, uh, the Live at Tanglewood video on YouTube, his drum set is tiny. Yeah, I noticed that. And yet he gets a huge sound out of it. There seems to be a common thread with drummers from the 70s. I mean, even John Bonham could get a pretty good sound out of a small kit, make it sound like a kit that was twice as big. It's interesting that drummers in those days did not need the huge, ostentatious, you know, MTV-ready, gigantic double bass kits. You know, I mean, when you see uh, Danny Serafin playing, you see his legs. You see him hitting the hi-hat. You see his leg kicking the bass drum because the bass drum is so small. You definitely see what he's doing there. The mark of a good musician is that they can take pretty much any instrument or anything they're playing and make it work, whether it's a big one or a small one. Absolutely. But we, I want to go back to Terry Kath a little bit. Okay. Terry Kath in recent years has become a little more known to the, I think, to the general public because of a couple of documentaries. And he is very much the soul of that band, I would say. And, and that's not to uh, downplay the contribution of the other members because they certainly all were a part of it but it just seems like terry really embodied a lot of what the band was about i think he was a focal point around which the other members could group when you see them on stage he kind of is like the central point not that he's taking up the lion's share of the vocals or all the songs being played are his but he is the one that kind of stands at center stage and I think he, he's almost like the conductor of the group on stage. I'm glad to see that he is getting some recognition and that hopefully people, when they listen to Chicago, will go, oh, that's a really great Terry Kath solo. That Terry Kath vocal is really good. He definitely deserves more more recognition. And even though it has to be unfortunately posthumous, I think he is finally beginning to get his due. And I, I think Chicago as a whole is finally being accepted as part of the canon in a way that they probably weren't in the 70s or because they were too new in the 70s and especially in the 80s when 
you know, there was a clear divide between eras, and people didn't people who considered themselves, you know, serious rock and roll fans didn't have much to do with that eighties material. True, very true. Why don't we move on to Lee Lochlane? Lochnane. I hope I said that right. I'm probably saying it wrong. The trumpet, flugelhorn, percussion, and backing vocalist. He's another he's another member who's been with the band all along and continues to tour or well, was touring with them until you know last year because of the COVID thing. Mm-hmm. And he remains there as well. Most of the horn section is, is still with them. Yeah, I think they're all I think they're all there as far as I know. Lee Lochnane is a great trumpeter. Um I don't think he contributes much to I've never heard a song sang by him. I don't know if he was ever one of the writers. I'll say this. Chicago's horn section was incredibly tight. Of course, they had to be. Um, right, they were only a, f- a four-piece. Is it a three-piece three. or a four-piece? Hold on. Three. Three, okay. Yeah, it's a three-piece horn section, so they'd have to be tight. They moved very much with one breath. Their horn, their arrangements are very much sharp. They're in unison, and they're very concise. And the other thing is that they don't comp during the entire song if there's a section that needs a guitar solo or a, or an extended organ solo the horn section does the correct move they shut up that was back when every when bands would allow everybody their moment in the spotlight it wasn't like they were all competing for the audience's attention it was like okay we've done our part okay terry you play your part peter you play your bass run robert you do a keyboard solo danny go crazy on those drums Exactly. I mean, every, everybody had their space. Everybody knew their part. They played it flawlessly. And we have Walter Parizader on saxophones, flute, percussion, and backing vocals. Again, you know, not one of the vocalists, not one of the songwriters. Crafty saxophone player. I mean, what can I say? Well, not only a crafty saxophone player, but he's also playing flute on something like Color My World, which is like incredible because you don't you think, oh, they must have brought in a, a, a flute, a flautist for that. That's true. Uh, yeah. One of, one of the other ones, uh, It Better End Soon, My Friend off uh, Chicago 2 is another one where he takes an extended flute solo. So, yeah, you're wondering where did the flute come from? Well, he just put down the sax and picked up a flute and they flow on. And he's another member who has been with the band from the beginning to the present. Although, as I understand it, he's listed as an official band member on the band's webpage, but he hasn't. I don't think he's toured with them in several years due to a, a medical condition. I'm not exactly sure what that is. Apparently, they still regard him as being part of the lineup. So, good, you know, good on them. Well, he's a shareholder in the Chicago Corporation too. So. A shareholder in the Chicago Corporation. Now we sound like we're talking about some corporate merger. That was the other, yeah. That that was the other big tag that certain groups had. Remember, there was the Faceless Band, and then there was the Corporate Rock. And yep. Chicago maybe didn't do themselves any favors in those days, because next to the Chicago logo was always the little TM. That's right, trademark. Yep. Do you, you remember there were there were certain groups, Kansas, TM. Kiss TM. I think it had something to do with with copywriting the logo as well as the band name. Well, I think TM stands for trademark. So yes, I think there's a difference between copyright and trademark. I think copyright refers to a, a specific piece of work, whereas a trademark is, you know, the Chicago logo, the Kiss logo, the Boston logo. And what's interesting is that it seems also that if you're named after a city or a state, you instantly become a corporation. Which is probably why they, they couldn't call themselves – they couldn't continue to call themselves Chicago Transit Authority because obviously even though there's two separate things, when fans wrote fan letters, you know, where was the, where was the mail going to go? That's true. Chicago Transit Authority would be getting letters and saying, oh, I really love that new song you do. And the guy would be reading like, what the hell is this? And let's go to the, the last but certainly not least member of Chicago, Danny Serafine, drums, congas, antique bells, and percussion. Very good drummer, and as I said before, had the ability to make a tiny kit you know, sound like the Buddy Rich Orchestra. And that's no mean feat because, I mean, I've never taken – I've never really played drums. I've kind of attempted it. Doing the stuff that he does is just – it's mind-boggling. Even just listening to it, you're going, 
how on earth can anybody play that? It's just incredible. And he was with the band up through, I think, the 80s, up to the late 80s, early 90s. There was a kind of controversial aspect of his departure, which I'm not going to really get into here, but he definitely was a vital, vital member of the band. I mean, they all were. You can't just write anybody off in that band just because they weren't a singer or perhaps didn't uh, grab the spotlight. Oh, yeah. Everybody played their part and played it flawlessly. They were a true collective. And the proof of that is the fact that where Blood, Sweat, and Tears hemorrhaged members with every release to the point where by the time they released their, their fifth or sixth album, the drummer was the only original member left. Whereas Chicago, the lineup held together, you know, at least up until the time that Terry Kath died. That was the first major lineup change, and that was completely, you know, unforeseen and unintentional. Exactly. And what's interesting about that is that Chicago 1 through 11, not only did Terry Kath pass away after the 11th album, but after they did the 11th album, they also parted ways with... Uh, James William Gersio, who, as you know, we said before, was not only their manager, but he was their producer. Within the space of you know a year or so, two vital members of the or- the organization, quote unquote, are gone. One of the you know one a band member and one being the manager and the producer. So that had to have a, a devastating impact on the band. It definitely does because the album that follows after Terry Kath uh, dies and Gersio was fired. The album that follows, of course, The Immortal Hot Streets, featuring um, one of the most fashion-forward covers of all time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the group members, the group members uh, cavorting merrily <laughs> in front of a white backdrop, um, wearing clothes that, in the middle of a sexual revolution, guaranteed that no member of this group was getting laid. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we don't know that for certain. I mean, we don't, you know, we don't know what was going on behind the scenes. But the interesting thing about Hot Streets is, is that it's the first Chicago studio album to have a proper title. It's a Roman numeral, and uh, that's like, true. Yeah. So, you know, I wonder if there are people out there who are looking for Chicago 12 and never found it. There's a reason that they go straight back to Chicago 13 and the old style of album covers on the next release uh, but sticking with hot streets for a moment not only does you know the entire presentation of the group change the sound of the group changes drastically on that on that album as well um that album was produced by phil ramone who was billy joel's producer and if you listen to um 52nd street and hot streets back to back you're hearing a lot of similarities it's Chicago is basically making a Billy Joel album is what they're doing on the on Hot Streets. And it's it, it's a change in sound that becomes more mature, more contemporary, more pop. The rock element that Terry Kath brought is gone. I have only heard songs from Hot Streets, so I can't really comment on it. But I, the songs I have heard, it, it almost sounds like Chicago was going in a more disco-oriented direction, which would tie in with what was going on at that time. And like you said, Phil Ramone's producing it, so it's going to be somebody who's more in tune with just the way they were. Yeah, the, the tenor of the times. Uh, the album that follows that, Chicago 13, number one, I think fans were a little bit dismayed uh, to actually see the group on the cover and notice that they were all fashion victims to a man. Well, actually, they were on the back cover. Chicago 13, and the reason I say this is because that's the first Chicago album I remember seeing as a new release. That's the one where the Chicago logo rises out of the cityscape or the skyline. And they were on the back cover. And what's interesting about that, well, it's interesting to me, you know, it's interesting to me, that was the first time I ever saw Chicago. They They appeared on Saturday Night Live in the fall of 1979, and I had never – I had seen the albums, but I'd never heard them. So it was interesting to see them. And they did a couple – I think they did one or two new songs off of that Chicago 13 album, but they did do 25 or 6 to 4. And I remember just thinking, like, this is pretty wild. 
of course, the solo was being played by Donnie Dacus and not Terry Kath, obviously. It would, like I said, it would be several years before I would really discover Chicago and get into their music. And Chicago 13 is the album that gave a street player for which the album version is 40 seconds longer than the disco 12-inch single. Wait, the album version is longer than the disco single? Yeah. Well, Chicago always did have to be different. They, they, you know, they didn't pad the song out by, you know, two extra minutes just by repeating sections and giving it more of a, you know, bouncy disco sound. Chicago, Hot Streets 13 and 14 are not horrible records. A lot of the the urge and the focus is gone. Like you said, there is a lot of disco influence. The songs aren't written as tightly, and the performances are not as urgent as on earlier albums. It, it's a band that definitely sounds like it's winding down to a conclusion. They're basically playing out the string at that point. And you're exactly right, because 14 was the last album they did with Columbia Records. And that's the break between the cl- you know, the classic era and the, the ballad era. That's very true. Basically, to wrap up this discussion, I would say that Chicago is a group that's more than the sum of its parts. Unfortunately, the legacy that shakes out is sometimes less than the sum of its parts. Yeah, it's it's marred by tragedy and changes in sounds and changes in band members and you know if you were to if we were to trace the evolution of Chicago beyond the 70s, we'd be here for the next 12 hours trying to you know suss that out. But one thing I would like to discuss before we finally do finish this conversation is discuss our favorite album covers. And okay. I'll let you go, I'll let you take the lead on that one, Mark. Well, the first, the CTA album, never entirely sure what the hell that is on the cover. It's, um, it looks like a, it doesn't look like a ticket. Is it a token, maybe? What It's it, that weirdly shaped thing. I don't know if it's, it could be a token. To me, it's just a logo. That's the thing that jumps out at me. And in, 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 in one respect, it kind of presages the, the CD era because this is a, image that reproduces better when you shrink it down as opposed to maybe some of the later albums it's shrunk down on the front however when you turn when you turn it over it fills up the back cover and there is no track listing there is no photo of the band there's no listing of band members it's that image taking up the entire back cover but what is your is, is that your favorite album cover though mark out of all of them, um, I do have a couple of favorites. Um, I really like Chicago 8, the image of the uh, the cardinal, the actual bird, not the papal cardinal, <laughs> which I think is kind of an in-joke because, of course, there is no team called the Chicago Cardinals. At that time, there was the Arizona Cardinals, and, of course, there was also the St. Louis Baseball Cardinals. There were no Chicago Cardinals. So I think that's kind of like an in-joke of some sort. Chicago 3, the uh, the American flag, which has been shot up by war, I guess. It's very ragged, but it's it's durable. Chicago 3 is their ultimate Vietnam-era statement, and so it has a cover to match. Um, Chicago 6 is the Money album, which is the only time in the 70s that the original band was ever included on the cover. But out of all of them, I think my favorite one is the Chocolate Bar, Chicago 10. Yeah, that's a good one. That's that one That's one even before I knew the band, that caught my eye. Because I'm like, oh, that looks like a delicious album. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing about that, that's, one of, that's the album where Peter Cetera begins the ballad era of Chicago. It, it starts, it, the roots of it are there. But I have to say that you know, from the it's not from technically from the original era, but it's the classic era. I love the I love the Chicago 13 album cover. That's another one. Like I said, I remember seeing that in the stores when it came out in '79, and I don't know. There's something about it that I like. It's it's maybe it's a little more futuristic than the past logos, but it's 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 definitely an eye catcher. Yeah, it's very very it's very urban. It's very night. It, it's very very late '70s. And it's, it's, it's a very striking image, I'll give you that. And the Carnegie Hall album cover is interesting, too, because it almost looks like 
the Chicago logo was emerging from a you know a bowl of milk or something like that. Yeah, it's um, marble basically. It's it's like um, what do you call that? Bar relief. You'd know better than I would. Raised. It looks like it's it's ra- It's on the side of a building. It's raised. You know, relief, bar relief. It's 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 almost hard to pick a favorite because they're one thing they were like like we said before the variations on the logo were very inventive they were and that was their calling card because again they were not a group of faces you know um, 16 magazine pinups so their entire identity came from the logo the uh, the different uh, ways that you know you can explore the concept behind it and I think that's why fans balked at Hot Streets. Yeah, they they were used to seeing that logo and the progression of it. They didn't want to see what the guys actually looked like. No, especially, you know, I mean, they're not bad-looking guys, but compared to, you know, like the Doobie Brothers on the cover of Minute by Minute, they look like the Doobie Brothers, how you expect them to look. You, you know what I mean? And they're not cavorting, you know, skipping on the cover. <laughs> No, they're just kind of sitting there, posing, probably a little stoned. Looking like the Doobie Brothers. Yep. So, yeah, it was probably, um, well, it it was a wise kind of experiment. They wanted to switch things up. I, I get it. It's just that it might not have been the right move. Well, I think at that time, they didn't know what the next move was. They were, you know, coming back from the, the Terry Kath tragedy and... Losing their producer, and they had to keep they had to keep going. But as they might have said, you know, where do we go from here? It's a transitional record for sure. It's not a bad album. It's got its good moments, but it's a fall off from the classic days of one, two, three, four, and five. So true, so true. Anyhow, to wrap this up, Chicago in the seventies is really worth hearing. They're finally getting their due. And it's a body of work that I can recommend without hesitation. And I would say that when listening to it, it's great to remember that they were musicians and that they they contributed not only to the band, but to popular music in general. You know, Chicago may have uh, slid off the charts in the early 80s and then in the 90s, but their music, especially in from that era, in my opinion, endures. And that's what the band's legacy will be. Absolutely. Well, do you have anything else to say, Mark? No, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Take me back to Chicago. You know, I was just going to say that. You you took my outro. If you, if you listen to Chicago, you'll get the lowdown on what a really great band was. That's true. And on that note, we'll end this episode of the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam. I'm Mark Konsorowski. And we'll see you the next time for another exciting episode. Good night. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Double K Super Show. If you like what you heard, please rate a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Podomatic, and share us on social media. Copyright 2021, the Double K Super Show.